Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here on Saturday at noon to defend and to promote public education every Saturday. And we have a website at www.adogs.info. You can listen to a podcast there of uh, what's been going on in the last five weeks. But you can also see our latest press release. And there is a press release for this week. It is 679. And it is in the form of a letter from the City School for City Kids team. Schools in the inner city, at last. And this letter is written by Denise Fung Henderson, Michelle Stiles and Joe Falshaw. And I think that the dogs and everyone else listeners should congratulate these ladies. And they write this. Have you heard the amazing news? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You get the picture. This is big. The government have announced four New inner city state schools, primary schools for Docklands, North Melbourne and Fisherman's Bend, plus a secondary school for Fisherman's Bend. And Docklands children will no longer be disadvantaged by being forced to frog leap uni high to attend secondary school at Mount Alexander College in Flemington and will be zoned to their closest secondary school, which is uni high or Albert Park College. But, of course, listeners, we need another secondary school in the inner city and there is just such a campus up Queensbury Street, North Melbourne, which is currently being used by private school principals alongside other principals. Nevertheless, all these new schools is incredible news for children and families living in the inner city. And it happened thanks to the petition which was signed by the City School for City Kids members, like the dogs and other people. It's a massive win, but University High is already full. Neighbouring primary schools are bursting at the seams. I know this, listeners, because I collect my grandson on, on Wednesdays and Fridays and I can see just how many children are now attending that school. It would have to be four or five times what it was when my son went there. Uh, the new school gates are not open yet. Not a single cent has been committed by the government towards any of the recent announcements on inner-city schools. 
nor was there a commitment to provide resources to University High to expand its capacity. Greater Melbourne's population boom is concentrated in the inner city. According to the Grattan Institute, the City of Melbourne is facing the most severe school shortage among inner-city municipalities and is set to experience a 62.9% increase in school-aged children in the next decade, or almost 7,500 extra students. Now, there might be a new P-12 school down King Street, Haleybury College, but I don't know how many people will be able to afford the uh, fees of Haleybury College. The critical delay in failing to provide schools to service the rapidly growing population of the inner city was caused by fundamental flaws in the methodology used in the Docklands School Provision Reports of 2011 and 2016, which resulted in forecast capacity and demand for state schools in the inner city being dramatically understated. Or perhaps the government was expecting the Haleyburys of this world to take up the slack. It's appalling that more accurate data sets, including actual enrolment figures from the debt, planning approvals and high-resolution population data from the City of Melbourne were not used and considered outside the scope of the Docklands School Provision Studies. Extrapolated forecasts from obsolete census data are inherently inaccurate in high-density growth areas. Yet even with these understated forecasts, the 2016 Docklands School Provision Report determined that there will be thousands of inner-city children in the next decade without a school place at an inclusive government school. All families in a community should be given the choice to attend their closest inclusive state school and not forced out of their community due to lack of government school provision. We must keep up the fight. We need the Premier's urgent action to meet critical capacity shortages in secondary schools to service the inner city. We have launched a new petition to urge the government to fund these promises in the 2017 state budget and for Docklands School to be P to 12. So we would encourage you to sign and spread the word. And there is another um, another change petition on our website for you. Please take a moment to celebrate the progress we've made together and then get ready for round two because we need to double down on this success. And thank you all for all you've done and will do in the campaign to build city schools for city kids because together, united, we will continue to make a positive difference. So you can go to their Facebook page and you can also go to info at cityschoolsforcitykids.com. And I think that these ladies should be congratulated. As Joe Toscano said this week, change doesn't come from above. Change comes from below with ordinary people fighting for their rights. And there is no greater right than the right of a child to enrolment in an inclusive public school wherever they may be living. 
Well, that's uh, that for the moment. Uh, we have a lot of very interesting material today. Parsi Salberg, who is an educational expert from Finland, uh, famous Finland in educational circles, has been in Australia. And uh, he was interviewed or he was given given an airing, as it were, on the Sydney Morning Herald website. So here he is. You'll be very interested in some of the things that he has to say about what's really behind Australia's declining international education results. I think we have some experiences in, for example, uh, when it comes to funding of schools, how the resources are allocated, and this is what what, uh, I understand Australia as a whole has been trying to do during the last five years uh, through the Konski um, uh, funding idea. I think that's something that we have a lot of experience, also uh, evidence to show that how important it is that the, the resources that goes through public education to schools and teachers and children are allocated in a, in a, in a way that, that those communities and, and children, individuals who need more, they also should get more. Early childhood education and special needs education are, are the two things in, in Finnish education that have been particularly well designed uh, uh, throughout the years, actually decades. Uh, so we have a universal right for every child to safe and high quality early childhood education before children go to school when they're seven years uh, of age. So the Finnish kids go to school later. So that's why I think it's very important to have, have the system where every child has a right and access to uh, early childhood services. Every, every child is now required to go to preschool when they're eight uh, six years old. Uh, in a way, just to get ready, prepared for the school. But it's all about play. It's all about kind of all sorts of other things that academic, uh, academic performance. I think that one one thing that separates, as distinguishes Australia and Finland, is that we have much less concern about academic performance uh, in in early years uh, that you have here. We we emphasize much more play and that the kids learn to to get along with one another and so on. In Finland, we prepare teachers only for the needs of the, the labour market, so there will be no surplus um, prepared by universities. And here in Australia, I, I know that many universities, many, many, many uh, areas here are preparing teachers much more than, many more than there are actually uh, places for them to work, which is a is not so good thing from a professional point of view, because many young people with their qualification to teach find it difficult to find a, find a job. In Finland, we don't have any private schools. We have a very small number, I think about 75, what we call independent schools, uh, but they're fully funded, um, 100% funded by public money, and they don't, do not have right to raise any tuition fees from parents. So it's, it's, that's a, it's a very different thing that here in Australia it is. And I think it's a, it's a good thing. Well, what is of most interest to what... Uh Parsi Salberg has to say uh, to people like the dogs and supporters of public schools, of course, is that in Finland, uh, even their independent schools are not allowed to charge fees. They actually have a genuinely independent, free public education system in Finland. They recognise the rights of every child to an education, free, secular and universal. And that, of course, is what public education in Australia is about and should be about. And it's what we have to fight for because it is being undermined at every point. Now, 
he had other things to say as well in his lectures, and he predicted a tobacco and big sugar-style marketing war between edutech-company-backed research and independent research in the next five years over whether more technology in the classroom is beneficial or harmful to kids. And we've already seen how big profiteering companies are in on the testing procedures being used in on children all over the world and the effect that testing and teaching for tests is having on the education systems all around the world. Uh, He complains that we're not paying enough attention to the very rapidly increased use of screen technology. He noted that the first three pieces, which uh, evaluate how countries are doing and their children are doing in tests, they were in 2000, 2003 and 2006. But this screen technology didn't exist then because there were no iPads or smartphones around to the same extent and certainly not with children at school. So if you look at children in Australia, they used a fraction of the time that they use currently today with different types of smartphones and iPads and computer screens compared to the first three. Uh, Now, these programs for International Student Assessment or PISA tests are run every three years by the OECD and they're comparing a sample of 15-year-olds in different countries on reading, maths and science. And Australia's results, as you may be well aware, have been slipping against other countries and policymakers and school systems have scrambled to figure out out what's going wrong. Well, the dogs could have told you what's going wrong is that the money is going out a leaky sieve to private schools from the public system. That's what's going wrong. But Professor Solberg, who's recently returned with his family to Helsinki after three years working at Harvard in the United States, said that the decline in pizza performance is happening in all Western countries also. Reading performance has been drastically declining in Finland as well. Our pedagogy and teaching has not changed, he said. The curriculum has not changed, but so how else can you explain dramatic change? A second key factor, he said, is that the East Asian countries, which are rising strongly in PISA rankings, drill their student populations and teach to the test. He goes to Singapore and he does a lot of work in South Korea. It's all over the place. They have practice halls for PISA. They practice using the PISA test items so the children are familiar with that type of thing. East Asian countries also enrol the majority of students in cram schools or private tuition where gadgets are banned while they study, he said. It doesn't really tell you how good the overall system is. It tells you how good the system is at taking these particular tests. And that's a different thing. Now, Professor Solberg, that's our Parsi, has been a teacher, educator and policy advisor in Finland. And he wrote the book, Finnish Lessons, What Can the World Learn from Educational Change in Finland? 
He told an audience of education leaders in Sydney last Thursday that it's just a theory, but research on the intrusion of digital technology is ramping up, and studies such as Growing Up Digital in Canada were reporting disturbing preliminary results, with some making the argument that digital immersion changes the way children think and processes information in a way that may make deeper learning difficult, which I find interesting um, when you actually look at the way the next generation are dealing with information. A frequent visitor to Australia, he's not here to sell the popular line that Finland's the perfect education system and in fact he's argued that New South Wales could teach Finland a thing or two. I don't think that Finland has the magic answer to education or anything. No country whatsoever has that. Uh, But what Finland does get right, he says, is its child-focused approach with an emphasis on play, a later starting age, which is seven, and letting each child develop at their own pace. As well as that, as you can see from his his other uh, interview that we've just played, he notes that our problem in Australia, and a very basic problem, is our funding arrangements whereby we fund and give so many billions of dollars to private schools to undermine our public school system. So there you are. He's follow- he is in Sydney at the moment. He's following a tour of regional and remote schools with the Education Minister, Adrian Piccoli. He's giving a speech about the results of a study of the New South Wales school system that he supervised at Harvard. And he said that Australia at the moment has a far better system than the United States. Uh, So it's very interesting. But an article by a United States academic, William Doyle, who lived for six months in Finland, was published by Fairfax Media. It's entitled, Why Finland Has the Best Schools and It Remains Among the Best Read Articles on the Sydney Morning Herald website, the Fairfax website. And Professor Salberg chuckled when I told him this. That was my friend, he said. He's writing from the position of an American. So why Finland has the best schools sounds uh, as if it's worth looking at. And we'll try and bring that to you next week. Well, we'll have a little break now and um, have a bit of music. Packerbell's Cannon, played by a flautist. None other than the really quite well-known James Galway.
Well, there you had James Galway on his flute playing the Packerbell Cannon uh, with an orchestra. Now, the dogs have never been backward in coming forward over criticising private schools, and most particularly the major private school body, which is run by the Catholic Education Bishops. It is run by the bishops, in spite of their attempts to say they didn't run the education systems in the High Court. Uh, They do it, of course, through uh, education commissions. And in recent weeks and months, we have made you aware, and I'm sure you are aware, of the extraordinary rorting of the tertiary system uh, by private companies that have come, in many cases, from overseas. But the Catholic Education Office uh, has its own way of rorting. They have been rorting, actually, the, um, the primary and secondary monies they've been getting, billions of dollars of it, for the last 50 years. So it's not surprising that they have just uh, continued this in the tertiary sector because where there's money to be got, I assure you the private schools are there with bells on. And there was money to be got and it was the Labor Party in Canberra that was responsible when they outsourced our TAFE system. It has been a long, sad, sorry, shocking story. But uh, this week, the Fairfax Media on October the 31st turned up the Catholic school which is being investigated over an alleged five million training rort. A Catholic school in Melbourne South East is being investigated by the school's watchdog over explosive claims of a five million state government funding rort. The alleged scam was carried out at St John's Regional College in Dandenong. It's understood it involved exploiting government training subsidies by dishing out cooking qualifications to students who never received any training. When I look at this, I think of what's happening up in North Melbourne, where there is a very, very big school. There's not many people around it. It was closed. It was a regional college and it was closed. And there's another one out in, um, out in Preston. Uh, which seems to be used for uh, these purposes. But there, you very rarely see students there. Well, that's what happened at St John's Regional College in Dandenong. Sometimes there were ghost students. Many of the students caught up in the alleged scam didn't even attend the school and some were adult migrants who'd studied overseas and wanted to quickly gain an Australian qualification. The Victorian Registration and Qualifications Authority confirmed it was investigating the training delivered by the school, which is also a registered training organisation, as part of a joint probe with the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria and the Victorian Department of Education. Forensic auditors have seized school files and notebooks to try and work out what happened to the missing millions. While training rorts have plagued the private college sector, this is believed to be the first scandal of this scale involving a Victorian school. Well, listeners, I'm suggesting that it won't be the only one. It's particularly sensitive for Catholic Education Melbourne, which prides itself on ensuring government funds are not misappropriated. Well, that's a very interesting statement, if I may say so. 
The school's canonical administration, which is made up of local priests, sacked the former principal Andrew Walsh and former business manager Mark Sewick on September after the revelations came to light. So two scapegoats have been found and they're secular people. They're not the priests or the bishops or Mr Elder from the Catholic Education Office. But the age is not suggesting that Mr Walsh or Mr Sewick were involved in the alleged scam. The school's newsletter said that Mr Walsh left suddenly for a range of reasons, including family health reasons. It's understood that he was upset and shocked when he was asked to leave the school he had run for almost eight years. The school is located in a disadvantaged area and almost half its students have a language background other than English. And none of the money reaped through the alleged rort is believed to have been spent on students and it's not known where it went. Many regular students enrolled at the school have received proper training and there are fears that their qualifications will be attainted by the alleged fraud. The federal government's My School website shows that the school's income from other sources soared from 642,746 in 2012 to a staggering 5.9 million in 2013. In 2014, the school reaped 5.1 million from other sources. On Monday, the blinds were drawn on the school's graduate restaurant, which is where the alleged fraud was believed to have taken place. Coffee cups were neatly stacked next to the espresso machine and white serviettes were neatly folded in preparation for the next diners. Well, the investigation was initiated following complaints. Uh, It's quite interesting. An education department spokesman said the school had held contracts to deliver state government funded training from 2011 to 2015, but it was unsuccessful in its bid for a 2016 contract. So this is what we have our education department doing, listeners. Not looking after our public schools, but outsourcing our education to the private sector. Now, the spokeswoman for the Education Department would not say how much funding the Catholic school had received under the Victorian Training Guarantee or for how many students, citing commercial in confidence. Well, that's not good enough. It's not good enough. This is our money. This is taxpayers' money. And that's what outsourcing means. It's commercial inconfidence and they can do what they like until somebody blows the whistle. And I suspect that in this case it was a student. I read somewhere where a student received... They didn't receive any training, but they received in the mail uh, a handbook which, which gave them all the answers to the uh, test that they had to do to get the qualification. Well, that's very interesting. The Auditor-General's report that was released earlier this year and which was was questioning a lot of the uh, Catholic Education Office's uh, expenditure of public money found little evidence that state government grants for non-government schools estimated to be £676 million this year were being used 
appropriately. So this is just another incidence of what happens when you outsource our taxes to private companies because the Catholic Education Office is really not that much different. Well, the dogs have been prepared to uh, talk about this certainly since the 1960s and 70s. And um, we've written written a book about what happened to us in the High Court case and how the uh, private schools tried very hard to prove that they were not religious institutions. But uh, when we uh, compiled this book, we did some very interesting interviews and one of the interviews was done with Kevin Healy who is one of the doyens of 3CR. He uh, has been responsible for a number of programs here. We all used to chortle every Saturday morning on his week that was on Bill Hartley's Paravion and he's also been responsible for City Limits. But Dale is going to read for you an interview that was done with him in 2007 for the dog's book, Contempt of Court. So here is what Kevin Healy had to say about what went on inside the Labor Party uh, when there was uh, DLP problems back in the 60s and 70s. Over to Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got uh, Kevin Healy's story from Contempt of Court. In the 1960s, many of us were in the ALP because it offered alternative and principled policies. We saw it as an avenue for getting radical issues debated in the broader society. The Victorian branch's opposition to the Vietnam War from the outset had been attacked by Conservatives, both in Victoria and nationally, because it would cost us votes. Forget the fact that, based on, a, on American lies and perpetuated by Menzies and his warmongering allies, we were slaughtering innocent people fighting for their freedom and independence. Ironically, while federal leader Arthur Corwell, to his credit, stood firm on the Vietnam issue, our opposition was vehemently opposed by his deputy, Gough Whitlam. Yet, arguably, this was the biggest single issue that made William, Whitlam Prime Minister. We were youthfully scornful of the pragmatic right-wing versions of the party in most other states, and particularly scornful of the New South Wales right. But in retrospect, the Victorian ALP in that brief period was an historical aberration created by the split when the right-wing unions and members broke away from the anti-communist party, which became the Democratic Labour Party, the DLP. These elements still controlled the party elsewhere, particularly in New South Wales, and eventually were readmitted in Victoria as a consequence of the federal intervention in 1970. We supported the state education system and strongly opposed state aid. I personally opposed state aid after I attended a Catholic college for many years. In our matriculation year in 1960, just five years after the split, our Christian Doctrine period on Fridays was conducted by Jared Mercer. Jared was a school captain from three or four years earlier who was a full-time worker in the National Civic Council, the Catholic-dominated anti-left force behind the DLP. He would walk in every week and whip out his map of Asia with his big red arrow zooming down from China. He told me they'd be here by 1964. 
the De La Salle brothers also praised NCC unions. They were great Australians fighting the evil enemy. They denounced strongly any unionist, unionist to the left of Hitler. I believed it outrageous that public monies should be spent on that sort of brainwashing. I always marvelled that B.A. Santa Maria, the NCC ideologue, could polemicise that one of the hideous aspects of atheistic communism was that it brainwashed dear little children, then, without a blush, demanded state aid for religious schools. The federal intervention in September 1970. As I remember, there were four meetings that were relevant to the change in the Australian Labor Party state aid policy in the 60s and 70s. The first one began when the executive were elected in the Collingwood Town Hall. It was the Queen's birthday weekend. At the 1969-70 conference, John Galbally was expelled from the party because of the state aid policy. I led the debate against Galbally. Members of what were known as the participants supported him. Until federal intervention, we on the left always had the numbers, so Galbally was expelled. The executive elected at the Collingwood meeting handled the Victorian state election. In those days, the executive had the right to demand that the parliamentary party held to party policy, mm. so the parliamentary, parliamentarians could not go off on frolics of their own. The media barons constantly excoriated the left executive for its interference in parliamentary process by maintaining control over the parliamentary wing. For them, a party executive insisting those elected to represent it should reflect its state conference policy decisions was undemocratic. There were 33 people in the, in the executive. They included George Crawford, who was the chairman, Jim Cairns, who was vice chairman, and perhaps Sally Johnson, who was also vice chairman. There were also Judy Bornstein and Beverly Jessner from the Richmond Council. They were strong on the state aid issue. Bill Hartley was the secretary. He was brilliant, had a very retentive memory and was loyal to a fault. Bill had it all in his head, but he did not have a vote. Moss Cass had been replaced by Peter Redlich, a bad swap, and mm. Ted Innes was also against the rest of us on the state aid issue. Mm. Mm. I was on the executive, and like the majority, I was a staunch opponent of state aid to religious schools. After the 1969 June State Conference, the executive told Clyde Holding we wanted to see his state policy speech in ample time to approve it before the state election due in the first half of 1970. Holding was automatically on the executive as state leader. As it turned out, Holding did not produce his policy speech draft until a regular fortnightly executive meeting on a Friday night, 11 days before it was to be delivered. Contrary to our policy, it committed a Labor government to supporting state aid. Mm. That was the second meeting. This executive meeting, which normally ended about 9.30 so we could go to the pub, went on until after midnight, with the state aid issue still unresolved. I led the attack against any form of state aid and Holding argued it would be political suicide to withdraw the aid the Liberal government had introduced. Finally, as so often happens, the matter was referred to a committee of party officers together with Holding. They were to report to an extraordinary meeting the following Friday, just four days before it was to be delivered. 
The ex- that extraordinary meeting was the third meeting. The policy speech came back to this extraordinary meeting the next week with a phase-out clause of the education policy, Clause 23, I think. I stated that we would phase-out state aid over the life of a government. Again, the meeting went into the small hours, and as we approved the policy phrase by phrase, I moved, whether wherever appropriate, that we insert phasing out and on each occasion Holding argued it was unnecessary because it was already in Clause 23. On each occasion I withdrew my amendment. Then when we got to Clause 23, he moved that phasing out be deleted. (laughs) I responded angrily that he was being grossly dishonest and couldn't have it both ways because I'd withdrawn my amendments on his assurance that the phrase was already in the policy. You're probably getting the impression that Holding and I weren't all that close. He conceded, and so after many hours of heat over two weeks, the policy was finalised. The phasing out of existing state aid was firmly entrenched. It was iterated on the Sunday at a meeting of the state candidates withholding shadow ministers and policy of party officers. Then on Tuesday night, Holding delivered his speech without mentioning phasing out. This was not in itself a major problem because it was a truncated version of the full policy document. But when the media produced produced the full document and asked Holding about the phasing out clause, he responded with, give me a look at that, and denied he had ever seen the phrase. The executive must have planted it on him, he claimed. The media had a field day. The campaign had died at birth. The Labor Party lost the 1970 Victorian state election and it was all downhill after that. Why Holding sabotaged his own campaign, I don't know. There are two most likely possibilities. It may have been a long-term strategy to destroy the executive because the phasing out controversy was one of the major charges it laid against us at a federal intervention later that year. But that presumes Holding and co-conspirators were prepared to sacrifice his or their own chances of election. Perhaps they were. The other possible explanation is he believed he could not win with a phasing out policy, but misread the damage his denial would cause. It's hard not to believe that he was naive. We can only speculate. But the certainty was that state aid became a key issue for the intervent- for intervention and the restructuring of the Victorian branch. I'll concede, and I admitted at the time, that the pre-intervention branch was far from democratic, controlled by a group of left-wing unions who made most of the decisions. A number of us drafted proposals for restructure, giving, giving real democratic control to the rank and file, but... That was the last thing the interventionists did. They simply replaced one left-orientated, undemocratic structure with a conservative-orientated, undemocratic structure aimed at wiping out policies they perceived as electoral liabilities, bums on seats in a policy-free zone. One of the reasons given for intervention by the federal branch was the accusation that the state executive had failed to inform Holding about the phasing-out policy. There was a push to get Whitlam into office in the years 1970 to 1972. His supporters on the federal executive saw the Victorian state executive as a barrier to winning power. The left unions had numbers in the annual conference and there were a number of key issues in contention. 
Vietnam, abortion, uranium and state aid. The Victorian Party had strong policies on these matters and were accused of being the cold hand of socialism holding down the party. (laughs) Whitlam, as federal leader, was against our stand on the Vietnam War, yet it was the Vietnam War factor that helped him get into office in 1972. There was strong electoral evidence that the DLP was also losing influence. Federal intervention was led by another group, many of them church school graduates and supporters of state aid. They were known as the participants. Some claimed to be Fabians, like Gough Whitlam and Race Matthews. Mm -hmm. The participants have enjoyed distinguished careers in the political and legal networks since since the 70s. They were mostly lawyers. Dick McGarvey, Xavier Connor, Frank Costigan, Alistair Nickerson, Frank Vincent. Many later became judges. Race Matthews was an education consultant who became a professional politician. Costigan stood for Chisholm and the dogs were involved. Ray has a story about that. The Fabian Labor lawyers were a close-knit and very able group. For example, when Bill Hartley was charged at the Springboks campaign, the first trial resulted in a hung jury. Finally, his friends went in and got Dick McGarvey, one of the participants, who became Governor of Victoria, to get Bill off. That's enough gossip. On with the state aid story. There was a fourth and final meeting on Monday, September 14, 1970. It was at this meeting at the Travel Lodge in St Kilda Road, South Melbourne, that the Federal Executive intervened in Victorian Labor Party business. The dogs and other groups and individuals protested outside. Mm. It was a long day. The Federal Executive met in a separate room and I was sitting outside with other members of the Executive. There was much toing and froing during the day. Bill Brown and Bill Hartley were the two Victorian delegates from the Victorian Executive who went to the Federal Executive as our representatives. Brown, the Secretary of the Furnishing Trade Union, was a safe Senate-endorsed candidate. There'd been trouble between Brown and Clyde Cameron. I believed it was about the phasing out of state aid policy. There'd been a heated meeting at Broken Hill and Brown got the better of Clyde. Clyde was a good hater. I suspect that intervention was in part driven by Clyde's getting his own back on Bill Brown. Anyway, after the meeting, Bill Brown came out. He ignored us and walked over to the phone and talked to his wife. He told her that the Senate ticket was intact. Then, without speaking to any of us, he walked out. He made his choice. He was elected to the Senate and never had anything more to do with us. After this meeting, some of us met to form the Socialist Left faction in Victoria. We gingered up the party for a while, but as you know, Bill Hartley was hounded and expelled when he tried to get the political leaders to adhere to Labor policy, Labor Party uranium policy. By that time, we had the Lib Labs and many of us felt that the Labor Party was an empty shell, a playing for ambitious, a plaything for ambitious pragmatists. Yes, well, I think that um, that about sums up the Labor Party even now. If you look at key issues, uh, and this, of course, is why they started 3CR. Mm. And at least on 3CR, we can have principles. Mm. And the principle of state aid, no state aid for private schools and separation of religion (laughs) and the state is still here with the dogs 
on this program. Mm. As uh, Kevin pointed out, the dogs were down there when there was intervention in those days. And it's been downward ever since, but we are still here fighting. Well, we'll have a bit of a break and a bit more music, and then we'll come back to talk about what's going on in America. <laughs> Public Interest Before Corporate Interests Action Group. Why is it so difficult to find a home? pay rent, pay mortgage? Why is it so difficult to afford childcare, get a decent education for the kids, have so much trouble gaining access to public hospitals and healthcare, finding a job, let alone a secure, well-paid one, to be able to pay for gas and power bills or even put food on the table? Remember when we could do all of this on one wage and an eight-hour day? We invented and built, discovered and taught. We made ships, planes and cars. We were among the world first in social, health, scientific and arts initiatives. Alas, no more. The three big parties are funded by corporates and therefore dependent and cannot honestly represent public interest. We are looking for like-minded people who would be interested in making significant actions to inhibit corporate power by pressuring politicians, writing public petitions, initiating public forums to inform and also give people a voice, organising demonstrations, standing a political candidate, investigative journalism and corporate vulnerability analysis. Contact PIBCI, www.pibci.net, www.pibci.net. P-I-B-C-I.net. Email info at pibci.net. P-I-B-C-I.net. Phone 0439395489. P.O. Box 20 Parkville, Victoria 3052. Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. If you would like to help put public interest before corporate interest, contact Pibsi. Well, what's happening in America? Of course, we all know that if uh, if Trump uh, wins the presidential election, then public education in America may be no more. Uh, all very interesting. Uh, we live in a very interesting world. <clears throat> but uh, what is happening in America? We've been told on the Diane Ravitch's blog Who's behind the big money takeover of the San Diego County Schools? Somebody, we're told, is trying to buy control of San Diego's education system, the whole education system. And few in the local media seem to have noticed until Sunday's San Diego Union Tribune finally covered it. The voice of San Diego has been quiet on this front, perhaps because, as the SDUT article reports, its co-founder, Buzz Woolley, is part of the action. He and his fellow corporate education reformers, let's call them deformers, have San Diego in their crosshairs and are spending big money to drive their agenda. A huge amount of money is behind this new corporate effort to disrupt public education. As the education historian Diane Ravitch explains on her personal blog, public education in California is under siege by people and organisations who want to privatise the schools, remove them from democratic control and hand them over to the charter industry. 
Well, what else, dear listeners, have we seen here in Australia with our TAFE system? But in the United States, the money that's involved is even bigger. Ravage points to Eli Broad, who made his money in the home building and insurance industries. Reed Hastings, co-founder and CEO of Netflix, and Michael Nulkin of junk bond industry fame as members of a group of billionaires who push legislation to expand charter schools and limit regulation of the industry. This is where we're at, listeners. Education has become an industry for profiteering by big money billionaires who are looking to insecure insecure parents to fill their coffers. The big money top-down campaign to expand charter schools in California is well documented in a recent series of articles by Capital and Maine. One article in the series adds the Walton Family Foundation, the philanthropy related to the family that owns the Walmart retail chain, to the list of charter power brokers who invest billions in creating and expanding these schools. Big money from these foundations and philanthropists, according to the report, pours into the charter industry to direct fund charter schools, pay for, quote, academic studies that promote charters and create grassroots organisations that make charter school advocacy look like a parent-led movement. To influence policy, these same organisations finance powerful political lobbies such as the California Charter Schools Association, CCSA, and they contribute millions of dollars to school board elections in order to replace those perceived to be anti-charter with pro-charter board members. As seen in recent elections in Los Angeles and Oakland, two cities where charter expansion partisans have been particularly aggressive. And now they're playing big in the San Diego County Board of Education race, with many of the usual suspects chipping in to tilt the balance of power in our county in their favour. Yes, Walmart and other big corporate money is pouring into San Diego to influence our kids' schools. So this is money, dear listeners, that these corporations are not paying in tax. If they paid their money in tax, then we would have, in America and in Australia, a first-rate public education system. And it's why Alice Walton, who's the second richest woman on earth and a Walmart heiress, Michael Bloomberg, founder of a business media empire, Reed Hastings, owner of Netflix, Doris Fisher of the Gap Clothing Stores and a number of other billionaires want to participate in stopping Rick Shea from being re-elected to the San Diego County Board of Education. This election's an obscure race that few even know exists, yet it's become the focal point of a high-stakes political shootout. The total cost of this race is likely to run into the millions of dollars, while in the past these costs were unlikely to pass a few thousand. This puts this minor election on track to be the most expensive race for a county office of education seat in the history of San Diego. 
The county board in San Diego oversees the education of thousands of the area's most vulnerable children. But this, unfortunately, is not the reason for the attention of the billionaires. Instead, the key lies in the relationship of the board to charter schools. Thus, this race is a stalking horse for the nationwide battle over educational deform, with teachers and their organisations on one side and a corporate elite pushing charter schools and other market-based reforms on the other. Now, dear listeners, why am I giving you this information? giving you this information because this is the possible future in Australia and we have to learn how to fight it. Now, our time is gone and uh, we really do thank you for listening in to the Dogs Program this week and we encourage you to look at our website on www.adogs.info but it's goodbye for now from Dale and myself.